0: Previously on the Tony Kornheiser
1: Show,
2: I was pretty happy. We got with a new it.
1: pre-swing thought, trying to keep your uh, yeah, lifting, angles lifting up levels. a little bit.
2: So I, um, again, yeah, not dropping the club, and not dropping yeah. my body. So I had a really good times first time i played in a very long time i had a really good time My first time out in 2021 yeah yeah well the day before i went out and played two holes triple triple it's not a good start it's, it's sort of it's the way rory mcelroy starts on sundays of tournaments now triple triple can i put it is there any water on this hole let me try and put it in.
0: this is general george washington and you're listening to the tony kornheiser show
2: So uh, I'm reminded of the fact that when we did go out, it was extremely cold and I was in 47 different layers. In the last couple of days in Washington, D.C., for those of you who don't live here, it's been delightfully warm, even sort of oddly warm. Uh, It has been in the 60s. It's going to be 70 tomorrow. Uh, I think it
1: hit 70 yesterday.
2: Did it? Okay. and It's it's not
1: oddly warm. You get this every March. But there is a humidity to it.
2: There's a tease to it because if you look ahead on the weather apps starting on Monday and Tuesday of this coming week the lows are below freezing and there is that there is that icon for snow on Monday and Tuesday in Washington DC i don't expect there to be significant accumulation of snow but there is some notion that there would be sleet and there would be freezing rain and it would you know so this is the tease that always happens and it it will be in conjunction of course With that really bad three weeks, when you go to daylight savings time, and what you're used to seeing at a given hour in the morning, you will not see anymore, you will just see darkness. The worst morning drive.
1: Now, I don't think it's a tease when you get this in the middle of March. We normally get this in February. That is a tease.
2: Okay, but but I'm saying we're going to revert back.
1: Uh, For a few days.
2: Yeah, it's going to be dreadful, and it's going to cause me anxiety. Although, to be fair, if it didn't happen, it would have caused me anxiety. Because well, I live distract, in a state it'll of high you from big, anxiety you from a big drive. <laughs> yeah, you remember that song by Mel Brooks? High yeah. anxiety. Where did um, he in, Didn't he work at in the Institute for like the very, very nervous or something like that? Yes. It just so I wanted <laughs> to. I, I wrote something down. Uh, I wrote something down the other day, and this these are things that I may never have talked about on this show. I may, I may never have talked about these things. We were talking about the ali Frazier fight at some length. And I honestly thought, those of you who've listened to the podcast a long time, maybe maybe you would think I'm wrong. But I felt Monday's podcast with Wilbon and Billis was tremendous because it was that rare uh, podcast where both people who we brought on were just totally conversational and fluid and there was no agenda and it was really easy to do and to listen to. So I really like the podcast, but it got me to thinking because we talked at length with Mike about Ali Frazier fight. That was, I've had very few disappointments in my career as a, as a newspaper writer. That's what I was. I was a newspaper sports writer and I've had very, very few disappointments and they tended to come in the beginning as happens to people when they're young, they haven't established themselves. They're their talents, their abilities, may be known by a small group of people, but not to the newspaper at large, not to anybody making assignments. And I had three things I wanted to do in my life. Three things came along at when I was at Newsday. This didn't happen to me at the New York Times. I pretty much got everything I wanted at the New York Times because they went and they hired me. And it didn't happen at the Washington Post because they went and they hired me. So if I said, I'd like to do this, whatever the this was, I had a really good chance of being able to do it. Except for the master's. I was barred from the Masters, but you know it's okay. I never. I, I did the U.S. Open and was okay, and I went to Augusta a number of Still times. Still
1: searching for hot water over at
2: St. George's. Yeah, that's true. I did the British <laughs> Open as well. Well, we had the hot water; Junior had no water. We took. We appropriated all the water. But if I wanted to do something, I would say, "Look, I'd really like to do this," and because I was there higher, I was able to do it. But at Newsday, though I was Newsday's higher, I came in as a high school sports writer. I came in at the bottom of the, of the rung, the last rung on the ladder. I came in at that. So there were three different things that in my life I really wanted to do. And for whatever reason, and probably because I wasn't good enough, I couldn't do them. I wanted to do the ali Frazier fight. Um, you know, I wanted, I wanted something like that. I'd been there for an hour at that point, and I wanted to do the Ali Frazier fight, not to do the main story, to do what we called in the newspaper business a sidebar, a small little story, because I wanted to see it. I wanted to be there, and I need an excuse to be there. And I was not on the list. Our lead boxing writer was Bob Waters, who was a great, sturdy curmudgeon of an old man, and he's the guy who had the (laughs) bottle of scotch in the bottom drawer on the right at his desk. He was that guy. He was that prototypical, archetypal guy. Bob Waters, and he did it, and a columnist was there, and a couple of people did sidebars, and I was not chosen. I was not chosen to do it. Okay, that was a disappointment. The second disappointment was I wanted very much to do Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs in the Astrodome. I wanted to do that. That was going to be three days of fabulous writing, and I wanted to do that, and that assignment was given to two people at my newspaper, a man and a woman. The woman was Lynn Rossellini, who later went on to a great career, I believe at Time Magazine or Newsweek. She was terrific writer, Lynn Rossellini. And the man who did it was my dear friend, Pete Alfano. And he was chosen over me to do that, and he did a great job. And I can't sit here now, 50 years later, and tell you I would have done better. I can't, I mean, and I loved Pete, so as happy as I could be for Pete, I was that he got that assignment And that became a front page story in Newsday, and I I just was disappointed I didn't get it. But, you know, that was the second one. And the third one, and this is the one that I think bothers me the most, and I'll explain it to you. This was on the Belmont Stakes uh, of Secretariat. I believe that was 1973. Secretariat was going to become, after the Belmont, universally acknowledged as the greatest horse of all time, but a lot of people thought Secretariat was the greatest horse of all time before the Belmont. By the way, he had won the Derby beating Sham. By the way, he had won the Preakness beating Sham. Um, And this was going to be their third race. And this this was on Long Island. Belmont Park is half in Queens and half in Nassau County. And this was ours. We're Newsday. We're Long Island's newspaper. This is our deal. We're we're supposed to do this one. And the sports editor at the time was Stan Isaacs, a man that I revered, absolutely revered Stan Isaacs as a writer. I think he was the greatest columnist just about that I ever read. And I grew up reading Stan Isaacs. And Stan had become the sports editor. And he had planned this enormous blowout coverage of the Belmont. I mean, he had, you know, he had a food writer going, he had a fashion writer going, he had a political writer going, he had like nine to ten people going to do very specific stories for a conceptual, this was like Sgt. Pepper, this was the concept (laughs) album for Stan Isaacs, And, and now I'm there three years, I'm pretty good at this point, I'm not unknown, and I was not asked to be part of it. And I stewed about that. I was really upset about that. This is the first time I've ever said that out loud to anyone. To anyone. Now I'm saying it to who's ever listening. Stan is no longer with us, but some of the people who I worked with at that newspaper at that time, like Joe Gergen and Steve Jacobson and John Johnson and Pete Alfano, they're with us. And I've never said this to them. And I just felt I got totally hosed in this. I watched, I watched that race at home and – cheered like crazy for Secretariat who, who 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 broke Sham's heart like you know less than a quarter of a mile in and won by 30 lengths I mean, it's the greatest triumph it's the greatest triumph in a big race you know with great horses ever ever i mean it was the coronation of secretariat uh and and i i wasn't there i was at home i was like you know in broadcast news when um <laughs> That's when right. Aaron is just sitting home drinking and <laughs> right. and she comes over, Holly Hunter comes over and they have that conversation. What do you think the devil's going to look like? And he's upset because he didn't get an assignment. He didn't get it. William Hurt got it. He didn't get it. And he said, that was me. I was sitting at home watching this thing on TV, probably throwing things against the wall. I was really upset. And those are the only times. I mean, there are other disappointments in my life. Don't, don't get nuts. But from a professional level, those are three things I wanted to do and didn't get them. You're looking at me oddly. No, when you started this,
1: I really thought that it was going to be your complaining about where somebody placed you in the press box. You were oh, unhappy no. to be sort of fourth no.
2: throw back left. No, no. These were things <clears throat> I no, didn't the, get.
1: These are, these are really interesting stories, and they're all, cultural moments more than just sports stories. Yes. Obviously, and you look at the third one. I wanted and, to be associated with this. And you look at the sort of 360 coverage that it's getting, it would make sense, somebody of your age and sort of still your niche profile as Well, yeah, but
2: Alfano and John Sohn were probably you, there. I right. wasn't there.
1: So with Alfano, were you actually reading every single day yes. le- leading up to this? Yes. Were you, were you underlining, circling? In my head, in
2: my head. But Pete's good. Proofing. Pete's really good. Pete's really good. So, you That's know. it's hard for you to admit. Um. No, Pete's really good. Uh, he's really good. Dan Lauk's really good. He wasn't on the paper at that point. But I, you know, these were those things where I said, God, I'd like to be a part of that. Am I not good enough? Am I not good enough? Now, it would be interesting if I then said, and I went on for the rest of my life to try to prove I was good enough. That, that didn't happen at all. I knew I was good enough. I just didn't understand why they didn't know I was good enough. <laughs> I have one yeah. email I want to read here. If I was going to say, okay.
1: did, did, was, it, was the fourth disappointment not getting to do that interview with Andre Agassi because Rachel Nichols beat you to that? No,
2: no, that was, no. That was a, no. I'd already <laughs> seen Andre Agassi. I'd seen him in Vermont. I went to some <laughs> tournament in Vermont when I was visiting Stephen Anita, and we, we went up there and saw, no, no. No, the other ones are so small as to not be important, but these were big. And if you don't think they were big, I've remembered them for 50 years. So they were. They were big in my mind. It was like, oh, you're not good enough. Really? I thought I was. Here is a, uh, an, an email that I just saw that I'm going to read. Tony, in the summer of 1962, I was a waterfront counselor at a summer camp located about one mile north of beautiful downtown Orson, Pennsylvania. And then I went right to the bottom to see who it was. And I know this person. <laughs> His name is Dick Kane. He was Dickie Kane when, when we knew him. Um, I remember him distinctly. I know what he looks like. Now, he doesn't look like that now but I know what he looks like. He goes, for some reason, the powers that be at Cuma had me bunk with a group of 14-year-old boys whose principal counselor was a guy named Larry Brown. It was obvious that this guy would do okay as a basketball coach one day because by the end of the summer, he had these boys consistently beating other teams of 16 and 17-year-olds. I don't remember too many of the campers, although two that stood out as being somewhat more intelligent than the rest were Brent Glass and Tony Kornheiser. Oh, God, you had me at hello. Oh, boy. In the mid 1990s, someone forwarded me one of your Washington Post humor columns, and I became an avid reader of them. One of your Washington Post columns, I became an avid reader of them, particularly the Sunday humor columns. Then came PTI, and I rarely miss an episode. May I suggest that you check out some of the NBA insights of the author of Ari's Basketball While the author's spelling, syntax, and grammar sometimes leaves something to be desired, he really does seem to have a pretty good current grasp of the league and its players. Ari is my grandson. Isn't that great? That's great. He turned 10 in January. Dick Kane. I remember him. I remember he dated a girl named Wendy. I am pretty sure they got married. I'm pretty sure Dick and Wendy Kane were married. I, I don't know what happened, obviously, but I'm pretty sure about that. And I do remember A lot of him. Wendy's
1: in your young life.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wendy Schlesinger, for example. I do remember Dick Kane very well. I didn't know he was um a waterfront counselor i just thought he was a regular counselor i i I don't remember that but this is for many of you the connective tissue of this show works out and for me this is one of those examples how did this guy get to here how did he get to here so this makes me very happy we will take a break when we come back chuck culpepper who i believe is doing stories on gonzaga and on baylor and is out on the road will join us i am tony kornheiser
3: You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show.
2: This is the Policy Genius ad, springing as we speak, and it's the perfect reminder to tidy up and get your life in order. Why not start by protecting your family with life insurance? Policy Genius can help you compare top insurers and save 50% or more. Go to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes to find your best price. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare policies from as little as $15 a month. You might even be eligible to skip the in-person medical exam. Since their licensed agents work for you and not the insurance companies, there's zero hassle. If you had any speed bumps during the application process, Policy Genius will take care of everything. The best part, all the benefits of Policy Genius, the comparison tool, the handling of the paperwork, the unbiased advice, they're totally free to use. So while you're tidying up around the house this spring why not get life insurance organized too you could save 50 percent or more by comparing quotes and feel good knowing that if something happens your loved ones will be taken care of go to that's a nice way of saying if you die go to policygenius.com well i mean come on it's life insurance go to policygenius.com to get started policy genius when it comes to insurance it's nice to get it right you're listening to the tony kornheiser show This is sent to us by William Bennett, the director of the official choir of the Tony Kornheiser show. That's Cane Bay High School in Somerville, South Carolina. And he writes, I had a student, Jill Wilson, come to share a song she wrote recently and thought you might enjoy it as well. It's called And We Begin to Dance. It's an original composition that is part Broadway, showstopper, part power ballad. She is featured on vocals, plays all the piano parts, and wrote the lyrics as well. She produced it using GarageBand from the confines of her bedroom. Here's the kicker. She's 15. She's freshman. <laughs> it's the first song she's attempted. Michael, you sang. Yeah. What do you think? Not like this. What do you think? This <laughs> is Jill Wilson. She's 15. She did this whole thing herself. What am I doing complaining about not covering Secretariat in the Belmont? <laughs> what am I, stupid? <laughs> wow. 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 Okay. She plays in Chuck Culpepper, and Chuck Culpepper is in Spokane, Washington, which is the home of Gonzaga University, and he has either been to or is going to Waco, Texas, which is the home of Baylor University, and because I worked at a newspaper for a long time, I think he's going to write a story or two on the number one and number two overall seeds in the coming up NCAA tournament, and you're in Spokane, and I said, wow, how lucky of him. He's in Spokane. Gonzaga almost got beat. They were down in the second half, and he got to see it. And then Nigel told me, no, he didn't, because that game was in Las Vegas. And I said, oh, Tony, you dope. You should have known. You must have watched it. You must have had a certain envy saying, oh, my God, if they lose, I would have been there.
4: I did. I had the feeling. And I had, you know, standing outside a sports bar that was 20 or 30 percent full or whatever the stipulation is, you know, and, and, and thinking about what if this were packed, you know, wall to wall and, and then the loss came and the people were filing out and, you know, what what would it be like to see that? So everything is now, you know, measured against real life versus pandemic life. And this was too.
2: Did you, did you watch, did you think to yourself at any point, well, you must have thought this, oh my God, they're going to lose. I can write tonight. I can write tonight. I'm here. I may not be there, but I'm here.
4: I did think that, and I thought about, you know, Brigham Brigham Young has this uh, player named Nell, K-N-E-L-L, and he was just hitting everything in the first half. I think he wound up with 20 points. And I remember thinking about, oh, the headline writers are so excited about
2: Death Nell. Death Nell for Gonzaga.
4: So I did think, but I didn't. I kind of didn't think it would it would hold up the way they were shooting. They they had thirty two possessions in the first half and they scored on twenty two of them. It's crazy. Yeah. So yeah. And the, but the other thing was the comeback itself. It's just so it just happens so fast with these guys. It's it's almost like nothing I've ever seen. Um, it's just it's it just they just swarmed over them and suddenly they have more more points and or it got to 57 all and then they're down nine and then they did it again um so their their offense is just really something
2: so pat 40 we had him on a couple of weeks ago and i asked him about gonzaga and this is ex- his exact words were they have the best offense in the country and i watched a little of this last night not all of it because it's past my bedtime but i watched a little bit and i've seen them this year and correct me if i'm wrong it actually looks like they have six guys on the court It does. They get the most open shots all the time. And you say to yourself, well, they must be playing with an extra player because they are, they appear to be that good. Am I wrong?
4: No, that's, that's absolutely it. It's just, it's, it's like, it's like an optical illusion or something. It's like watching something that's, that's despite, you know, having watched an unhealthy amount of basketball all through life. It's just, it's still unfamiliar. It's, it just looks funny.
2: Um, I've never liked Gonzaga. I've always thought they were overpraised. I've always thought they were overseeded. I would point out, as you well know, Chuck, they've only made the final four once. They've come in with the most glittering records 15 times and they've only made the final four once and they've never won it. And my criticism of them is the criticism that anybody would have, which is you're playing in a lousy conference, you're unprepared for four tough games in a row of the six that you might have to play to win the tournament. Do you agree or disagree with that?
4: I think usual I think that's been true at times and not true at times for them. I think oh, I look at that 2019 team that played this incredible, forgotten. Uh, West region final against Texas tech, There was just two fantastic teams. And you, you know, I just sort of couldn't believe that a team as as tremendous as that Gonzaga team was about to go out. Um, And, but this time, I think, uh, this time, this time, I kind of think, you know, this is, this is, this seems different to me. Um, I don't, I actually don't expect them to, you know, to win the national title, just because of how the tournament is and how it's impossible to to get through, and they're going to carry around the, the zero in their in their loss column. But yep. but this time, I, I I just see them this time as if you played the tournament ten times, I I do think they'd win it a couple times. So I, I think they're ready this time uh, and and good enough this time. I worry about the defense a little bit when you look at the point totals of the really good teams they've played it's uh they're kind of high
2: it's immortality if you get it the last one is bobby knight's indiana team in 1976 we've seen four teams since then three of which got to the final four one wichita state did not we've seen four teams come in undefeated if you do it if you do it that that's absolute immortality right it is oh sure and
4: because they've had these cancellations they're sitting on 26 and 0 if they do it they'll they'll be exactly 32 and 0 which is what indiana was
2: yeah
3: so
4: i still think it'll be immortality now if kentucky had done it in 2015 when they got to 38 and 0 they would have been 40 and 0 at the end well that would have been some immortality but this thing yeah this thing still would be it's um they, they would they would match the 32 and 0 it's kind of kind of funny that way cuz you know, teams don't play just 32 games anymore.
2: I think a couple of UCLA teams were probably 32-0 and as well. <clears throat> That's yeah. my guess, yeah. that they were 32-0. and It's interesting you mentioned the, um, the Kentucky. Kentucky-Wisconsin was one of the two or three greatest games I've ever seen on television. It was just so great. I mean, that was, right? I mean, that was a great game.
4: Oh, God. I go back and watch it every so often just to, just to believe that it happened the way that it did, which I still kind of don't.
2: Let, let yep. me get to Baylor. Uh, my resentment for Baylor is obvious. Uh, it's football school, but it goes it goes deeper than that for me. Baylor has had horrifying scandals that also had the loss of life. I'm I'm pretty sure about this. In not in football, but in basketball, horrifying scandal of of you know terrible treatment of women in football that cost Art Briles job and should have. And somebody on the Baylor team, basketball team. Who was the coach? He was one of Bobby Knight's assistants at one point. I wrote it down, Dave Bliss. I mean, am I not right that Baylor has a, a checkered career uh, in terms of sports administration that is remarkably bad in the last 15 years, or am I wrong?
4: I would say the last, let's see, when you, get, when you go back to the Dave Bliss, um, yeah. you're, you're really roping in 20 years there. Okay. Yes, it's been. okay. And, and those things are kind of seen, with some other you know historic events in the in the town as as sort of things that are in the psyche and and are being recovered from that's the whole the, the whole way of looking at it. you know the and the re, you hear all the time when you talk to people there the rebuilding job that Scott Drew has done based on where they were i think it, it, it's 17 18 20 years ago the, the Bliss thing um, the bliss, abomination. Um, you know that it's seen now as part of the, you know, part of the impression that's left with what's going on now is sort of, you know, we're tr- we're trying to redefine ourselves.
2: How about the Art Briles thing? That's a lot sooner. That's a lot closer. Right. You know, I mean, I, I, the- I appreciate the fact that the women's basketball team has won national championships, and I appreciate. Uh, that Kim Mulkey has gone up and, and grabbed the microphone and been very defiant about the school and about the team and about all those other things. I appreciate that because she's from there. Well, she's not from there. I mean, but she's been there a long time and she's a terrific basketball coach. But it, these other things are also true. They also happened. They also happened, right? Right.
4: And we have to think about them and we and we do think about them when we think about Baylor. I mean, they yeah. they are in mind. And the the basketball one has gotten a bit distant now. The football one is not. I think when we think about the football team, we think about the job that Matt Rule did, the coach at uh Yes at uh the Panthers now. Um and we think about that job as having been incredible because of what had happened with the you know, with the previous regime. So yeah, it's it's very much it's very much lodged in our thoughts now about about what Baylor means and what Baylor is about and and you know what what in their case when you when you listen to them to people in Waco to go what they're trying to you know present a new form of themselves
2: and and good you know good I mean Scott Drew is terrific and, and Matt Rule was terrific and and they walked into very very difficult circumstances and they performed admirably I'm just saying that in my mind I can't think of Baylor without going back to the football and the basketball programs and, and really significant, and I felt, lasting scandals. I mean, I feel that way about Penn State. You know, I, I, I always think that way. I always think of Jerry Sandusky. It's hard not to, isn't it? It's hard. It,
4: it is, and I think of these things oh, in terms of, you know, what's going on with the culture that, that kind of, and, and really, the culture almost in, in many different places. You know how does how does a culture allow the, these kind of things to to kind of carry on the way that they did? You know LSU now we're going to start yes. thinking about that yes. in a certain way. Um, and you say you say sort of how does this work? That you know in that report about LSU, there was there was talk about sort of how protecting the brand was important, and a whole society and 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 town gets behind protecting the brand. Where well, you know protecting the brand is. It becomes the paramount thing, and how does that happen? You know, how do how do minds start to work, and how does fear fear of being ostracized or whatever it would be or cast out um, become a factor that makes these cultures go so wrong the way some of them have?
2: Yeah, life imitates art. It's the plot of Jaws. We've got to protect Amity. We got to make sure that everybody comes out here. We can't we can't let this shark no we gotta we gotta protect the brand that's the whole deal les miles got fired i just wondered your thoughts about that i i I mean i don't know how he or his lawyer could have ever thought that once this thing became public that that kansas would keep him you just can't right you can't
4: i guess if i guess they were thinking about it in terms of well it happened at another job but you know that's that's thin ground so (laughs) that's thin ground given the the you know, the severity of what was going on and just the the disgrace of what was going on. So yeah, I, I think they might have been thinking that way, but that thinking would be outdated.
2: Yeah. Um I'll let you go on this. Just tell me one thing to tell me that, that- Somehow, some way, even if Duke loses tonight, Duke will still be in this tournament because you can't we can't really have the tournament without Duke. So there's gotta be a codicil, you know, there's gotta be some backdoor thing that will allow Duke to just play if they still they don't have him in Dayton anymore. But just you know, just the first night. Just just let Duke in. Am I right on that?
4: Yeah, yeah. Just have him at you know, that first night's gonna be at either Purdue or Indiana, about an hour and 15 minutes outside of town uh yeah yeah and Kentucky too I think you just have to (laughs) you just have to to bring them both because you know that's that's what we do we we have to bring both of those into the tournament and they'll probably reach the final and and then we'll all talk about what a um what a, a strange season it was with this ending that was exactly like the norm
2: Can I tell you that if they put Duke against Kentucky, it would get a (laughs) higher number than anything until the round of eight. It would get the highest number, right? Right?
4: Oh, yeah. Oh, yes.
2: You know, and the first thing that the first announcer would say, whoever it was, is you can throw out the records when Duke and Kentucky play each other. Yeah, of course you can. (laughs) That's what people want to see. Enjoy. Enjoy your travels. Enjoy. We will try to talk to you from Indianapolis. Thanks, Chuck.
4: Thanks so much, Tony. Thank you.
2: Chuck Culpepper. He's a wonderful, wonderful writer. So happy to have him on the show. Michael, you are grabbing for something. It's your read. Fantastic. We'll take a break. When we come back, um, Brian Koppelman will join us. I do not know Brian. I know some of his work. Uh, He is the man who wrote Rounders. I believe he's written the television show Billions. He was in the movie, one of the great movies of all time, Michael Clayton. Um, So he's going to join us. He does a podcast for cadence the same company that we do podcasts for called the moment and we'll we'll get to that if he stays on the line with me because i think he may think i'm a jerk because (laughs) because in fact i am i'm tony kornheiser
3: this is the tony kornheiser show tony kornheiser
1: show
2: yes this is my
1: read and expressvpn is here with some hard truths how did you choose which internet service provider to use the sad thing is Most of us have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve. Then they use this monopoly power to take advantage of customers. Data caps, streaming throttles, the list goes on. But worst of all, many ISPs log your internet activity and sell that data onto other big tech companies or advisors. So to prevent ISPs from seeing your internet activity... Use ExpressVPN to protect all your devices. What exactly is it? It's a simple app, ExpressVPN, uh, for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server. I love the idea of tunneling Tunneling. data to safety so that your ISP cannot see any of your activity. Tunneling tunneling. Just think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, the list of people you've messaged, sites you visited, and videos you've watched that'll click anything, gets tracked by tech giants who can then sell your information for, prod, uh, for profit. Yeah, if
2: people send me stuff, I just click, just click on it. Just it. yeah, It's a free razor. Yeah. So that's
1: that's why you should check out ExpressVPN. It's the best way to wow, hide your online $50. activity from your ISP. <laughs> you just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. Before you note it, you're tunneling. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Weird. So stop handing over your personal data. I think that was Wired.
2: Wired, so, not wired. Weird? <laughs> Sorry, wired. I'm just well, reading. Okay. Tomato, tomato.
1: So yeah. stop handing your, over your personal data ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Tunnel! Re- tunnel Tunnel. protect yourself with a VPN that'll keep you your online activity private visit expressvpn.com slash Tony that's expressvpn.com slash Tony to get three extra months free go to expressvpn.com slash Tony right now
2: in England they tunnel they don't tunnel we tunnel but they tunnel in England Nigel you know that that's what you do absolutely nice read thanks
5: this is the Tony
2: Kornheiser show Tony
5: Kornheiser show
2: This is sent from Jesse Hightower from the D.C. area band Interstate Rivals, and he writes Bonjour, old sport. I've always wanted to write that. (laughs) This is their newest release, available March 5th, so that's already out on Bandcamp is called Concerns. This is a song called Doc McMuffins. We're thrilled to have our music played on the show again. We're also extra excited to have the opportunity to work with Matt Allison, who mixed the EP. He's produced albums for some of our favorite punk bands, such as the Lawrence Arms, the Holy Mess, and Less Than Jake, just to name a few. This is um, Jesse Hightower again, who says, shout out to drummer Kevin and guitarist Adam, LeCezerita Rudy, Zach, and the guy from the Dropkick Murphys. Michael, if people like Jesse Hightower and his band, uh, his band Interstate Rivals, and Jill Wilson, played for us before. If they want to send their original music to us, which can be heard in its entirety at the end of the podcast without me talking over it, how do they do it?
1: Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonyquanizoshow.com and this does have that early St. Paddy's Day
2: feel to it. It's really nice. It's really nice. The music is great. It's born out of necessity because if we wanted to use real music, we'd have to pay a billion (laughs) dollars. So we invited people to send their original music and it's worked out great. Brian Koppelman joins us now. I'm going to be a little bit long-winded. Brian Koppelman joins us now. He is part of the Cadence group, the Playtone family, as we like to say. He does a podcast called The Moment, which is very specific, and it talks about the moment that you realized your life was changing and you, well, I'll let him him talk about that. But I, I need to apologize to him first, because I know that he wrote Rounders, and I have not seen Rounders. And I know that he wrote Billions, which is a hit television show, and I have not seen Billions. But I also found out that he's from Long Island, that he's from Roslyn Harbor, which my guess is he either went to Roslyn High School or Wheatley High School. And my guess is, at his age, that it's very possible that his parents went to camp with me. It's just very possible. That's what I think. So which high school is it, and what camps do you have in your background?
3: Well, I, I grew up in Westbury first. First so of all, it's awesome to be here with you. Uh, there are very few things that impress my 25-year-old son, but this does. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it really does. He's not a Long Island kid. He's a city kid, so you understand. Uh, yeah. They're just very jaded. Uh, yeah. I, so I was in Westbury and my parents sent me to Quaker school and I stayed in Quaker school when we moved to Roslyn when I was 15 or 14. So uh, I went to, I went to private school to Friends Academy, but I was in Roslyn. I played basketball with all the Roslyn kids and all the Wheatley kids. And, uh, you know, we were in like basketball leagues together. So I, I hung out with a lot of kids at both those places. My parents didn't go to camp. My, my dad didn't go to camp. He, his, his, uh, his parents,
2: uh, could uh, afford to send it to camp. Now, you see, they should have done what I did, which was be the nephew of the people that owned the camp <laughs> and go there on did scholarship. That That's how I did yeah, it. Yeah, that worked. The great, sure. the great Camp Kiyuma. And I guarantee you that people you played with in Roslyn and Wheatley, some of them went to the great Camp Kiyuma because we used to draw from the North Shore all the time. And I was a South Shore kid. Oh, my, I went to Hewlett High School. My
3: dad did love that. My dad did love that record, uh, Hello Mother, Hello Father, which I'm sure you grew up listening to. Alan Sherman. That.
2: Sure, here we yes, are at he Camp loved Granada. It. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's he loved great. The
3: camp record. So,
2: so let me let me get to this thing because as I said, I, I I hoped I didn't disappoint you by not having seen rounders and not having seen billions, but I have seen and I regard as one of the greatest movies I have ever seen. Michael Clayton. In fact, Ezra from Arlington. Um, Arlington, Massachusetts, not Virginia, writes, as a millennial little, I make a policy of not following the guidance I get from the show. I still make my grilled cheese with butter. When I'm not on my bike, I don't tend to wear white, and I barely ever use the code. But after 15 years of listening and a full year of being stuck inside uh, during a once in a 100 years global pandemic, I finally took your advice and I watched Michael Clayton. Good movie, The Horses, Information for Life. You're in it in in one of the in what i would say is actually for the setup of the movie and you would know far better than i cuz you've written movies but but the critical scene for setting up the movie that tells you the flaws in michael clayton's personality that he's a degenerate gambler and that he's going to be an anti-hero more than a hero as this thing progresses you are the antagonist in the poker game you're fabulous you're just fabulous <laughs> oh, what did, Thanks, do people ask you about that ever? I love that movie. People tweeted
3: it. You know, when people now watch the movie and realize that it's, you know, the guy who co-created Billy, like people now put it together. I'll tell you, so I agree with you. That movie is a staggering, achievement for real, that's a staggering achievement. When people ask me what screenplay they should read when they want to get in this business, I point them to Tony Gilroy's Michael Clayton script. It is a perfect screenplay. But I'll say this, Tony, unlike you, Tony Gilroy watched Rounders. And (laughs) because he has taste, he has good taste, uh, he's got cultural acuity, you know what I mean? He understands uh, what uh, is important in the firmament. And So he watched Rounders and he called me and he said, I'm writing a poker scene for this movie. And would you uh, just vet the poker? So I did. I, I went through it with my partner, Dave, who, with whom I make all, all the movies and shows that you uh, studiously don't watch. And, uh, but, but so we, we went through, and we said it should be the game Omaha, and told Tony, you know, Tony wrote the scene, obviously, but we gave him sort of what the poker should look like. And then they cast that scene. They were about a day away from shooting it, a couple of days away from shooting it. And he called me, and he said, my actor... Who was gonna play the wise ass at the table? Bailed on yeah. me. Will you come do it? Because you're comfortable oh, at the poker table. It's so you know, great. The movie set, and I tried to get out of it, man. I, I <laughs> to three local actors, but I hadn't acted since college, you know. And and uh, I was I, I was terrified to show up. And of course, at the time, I didn't know Clooney, Dave, and I wrote Ocean's Thirteen afterwards. Uh, probably another one you you haven't essayed, uh, but um, so we. <laughs> really, uh, Together, uh, so I, but I decided okay. I'll, uh, Levine, my partner, looked at me and he, he said, uh, "You're crazy not to do this. Like you have to do it. They're asking you to come do." It. So it was one of the great days. I had I had the best time. Clooney was, you know, he understood. Obviously, he knew that I was in, uh, in the business appear, but he also could tell I was not comfortable as an actor necessarily early on in the day. And he did everything he could to make me comfortable and able. You know, he got me laughing. He basically did everything he could to make me not self-conscious at the table so I could do the job I had to do as an actor. And I am so glad that I got to be in such a crucially great and important film.
2: It, it, it I mean, it really is. It's, It's fabulous on every level. And you're great in that movie. And I'm so glad to hear you say that about George Clooney, who is somebody that I have I have watched in so many different movies, and I think he is—you know—he's the heir to the notion of larger than life in movies. He's just fabulous. I—I I was in his company once. I mean, only only because he walked by me, and I just said, "Wow, that's that's what a star looks like." I mean, you have that sense, right? He's a star. Did
3: Did, did you get to spend a couple of minutes with him when you saw him on the street, or, or no? No, he, it
2: was it was that he had done this thing for HBO called. Uh, K Street, it was a six-part thing on on being a lobbyist. And there was a reception, I've told the story a thousand times, there was a reception at the Palm in Washington, D.C. And I was standing with Tommy Giacomo, who was the maitre d' of the Palm, And we stood together as Clooney walked in, and there's like 200 people. Palm's not a huge restaurant. There's about 200 people there, and they are all in the political business. They are either elected or they're appointed or they're staff. And all of a sudden, Clooney walks in, and like a million fireflies, everybody's taking a picture. This is before cell phones. I mean, this is when there's, you know, where there's flash bulbs. And I went, oh my God. And he is lit up in that way. That, that, you, that it even makes him more large. You know what I mean? I mean, it just. It, I was awed.
3: He is the most delightful, uh, and, and I would say this to you if we were not on microphones, when, when you are in the position he's in, and I'll, I'll tell you something about that movie star thing too, but I'll, I'll quickly say, when he's on set, we got to be on set every day of, of Ocean 13, and I played basketball with George. Almost every day, he he plays a pickup game with members of the crew. You have to really play ball. Luckily, like I said, I played my whole life, so we were able to play together. He's a very very good athlete, George. You know, could have been a college baseball player, uh, and uh, but he makes the point to make every single person on set feel good about the day, so that the treatment he gave me and Clayton, I later learned as I got to know, is just when he shows up on a set, he believes his job is to make that set function as well as it possibly can. And part of that is making everybody have as good a time while doing their jobs as they can. I've I've rarely seen anybody uh, better at understanding the mood of an environment and being able to shift the mood of the whole environment to match what it ought to be. It's a very particular and special skill set. But I'll tell you one other quick thing that you'll enjoy about the movie star thing. On the set of Ocean's 13, as big a star and as charismatic and as magnetic as George is, George and Matt nicknamed Brad Pitt the movie star because uh-huh. when Brad walks down the street, those other two guys become invisible. It is one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life. Brad literally, it's like you see George walk out and, and and it feels like it's the Beatles, but but suddenly... Brad walks and it feels like it's Muhammad Ali or something. Like the entire village just follows Brad Pitt everywhere he goes.
2: I will tell you that I have seen Oceans 13. I've seen all the Oceans movies going back to 11. I've even seen the one with all the women um, I like them all. I just, I think that they are all wonderful movies. So, so you can't hate me on that one. Cause I've seen that and I've <laughs> liked that. Good. I've liked that very much. And whenever it whenever I go through the dial and I land on it, I stay for at least 20 or 30 minutes. Cause I really like it. You have, you've written, you, you mentioned your partner, um, who I'm, I'm unfamiliar with him, but it struck me that is this sort of like, uh, is this sort of like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck with Goodwill Hunting? I mean, did you did you sit down and as kids, as kids, yeah. you wrote something that was terrific, right?
3: Thanks. Well, well, you, you got to watch. I'll say you will love Randall's Up. I'm very confident that you'll love the movie.
2: Uh, yeah. Between, well, I'm not going to tell uh, you if I don't, <laughs> don't because you rip all the critics who's ever ripped your stuff. I'm not. I'm going to tell you it's great.
3: Them. I not I just remember who they are. But oh. rounders, what's great about Rounders is, yeah, didn't, it's fine if you didn't like the movie then. Uh, but 25 years later, what, what I rip the critics on, and as a journalist, a great journalist, you understand that you got to be responsible for this stuff, which is, I've had critics rip Rounders at the time, and then 10 years later in another review, talked about the, how much they loved that movie. and, and you know, They'll say, well, this work from compliment and Levine, uh, it, you know, is is pale is pale in comparison to the great classic writers that my family and I watch every Christmas, and, I, and I'm like, "Dude, I can pull up the review. You you hated it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> was the only so, you know, yeah. one thing not like my work, but don't not like it and then later on uh, thing. It's uh, praise, but yeah, Levine and I have been best friends since we were kids, man. And so the greatest thing is, this is a guy that I grew up playing two on two with. My doubles partner, and uh, you know, we play too much of football against people. Like, this is my best friend since we were 15 years old, and so the fact that we're in our 50s now and still doing this together, getting to hang out all day and make stuff—that uh, a lot of people, except great radio hosts, watch—is a very, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a great feeling uh, that we get to do this. You know, it's amazing. It, it really is crazy that your lifelong best friend is a guy you get to walk on set with every
2: day. I'm really happy, uh, by the way, really happy that you will accuse me of all of these things, and I'm happy that you bear grudges. It makes me happy. I talked to Simmons about you. I texted with Simmons back and forth, and he said to ask you about hedge funds, and I said, Simmons, the only reason you say that now is because you made $300 million from Spotify. I'm not asking him about hedge funds, and I'm not not asking him about the Knicks either, but I will ask you, because the Knicks, two championships in 80 years, please stop, and none in the last 45 uh, I will ask you about the moment. I mean, I, I do a radio show. It is a podcast, yeah. but it is my daily radio show. A pod. You do something different. Can you explain what it is and 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 how you go after the guests that you have?
3: Yeah, I love doing it. I started. And it was Simmons gave me the podcast. Uh, I was a guest on his pod, like in 2013, and at the end of it, we started talking and, and uh, came to the, the. He was like. I said, I think i want to do it. And he gave, me the, he gave me a shot, you know, 20, whatever it was, 14. So I've been doing this before a lot of people got into podcasting, and I, I love it. I love it because I'm a really curious person, and I get to talk to uh, people who have accomplished great things in, in their lives in the creative, usually often in the creative sphere, but it could be anyone from Salman Rushdie to Seth Meyers to Barry Davis. And as long as I can find a way to hook into a moment in their creative journey where they either had great success or failure, and they had to figure out, what, what do I do now? I call these inflection points, and, you know, it's a conversation that's been going on now for seven, eight years, and I uh, have a really loyal audience who really engages with it, and I uh, find, you know, I find this stuff so inspiring, There are various times in my life where I was kind of lost career-wise, it's know. How to, how to keep going. You know, as you know, any show business career has a lot of ups and downs, and in these sort of down moments, talking to these people really helped me a lot, and I think it helps people with kind of an... I'll get letters from the 22-year-old uh, who's deciding whether to go to law school or whether to try to do his dream job, and hearing the way they think it through and, and what they hear reflected in these conversations is great, and it's what keeps me doing. And Simmons, by the way, is a great and loyal friend of me for... You over 20 years, and, and anything he said about me, I'll, I'll, I'll own it. I'll
2: take it. No, he loves you. No, of course he loves you. He, uh, he told me you did a 30 for 30 on Jimmy Connors. I, You know, I'm of the age where I covered a lot of things with Jimmy Connors. I'm curious to find out w- what you thought of him if you got to spend time with him. Because as as great oh, yeah. a tennis player as he was, I found him to be basically a brute as a human being. I mean, you know, not not someone... Go ahead.
3: The 30 for the 30, to 30, I me a the list. They said it was like the fifth best out of all the 30 for 30s. And I, I'll tell you, we grew up, so I grew up working at the U.S. Open, so I'm very bonded uh, with the Open. I, I worked there like my uh, sophomore, junior, and senior years of high school, and it was an incredible experience. You know, you are used to being in the locker room and around athletes, but for a kid, you know, who was, was a tennis fanatic, it was amazing. And yeah, man, I. I Jimmy was always this incredibly polarizing, fascinating, compelling figure because, exactly as like you're saying, you know, his level of anger and hatred. But the documentary yeah. builds to him saying, and I won't curse, though he does, but uh, the last line of the documentary, and he said this to me. Well, I read him on the last day we could interview him. You know this technique, you read all the bad stuff people said about the person. And I said, Are you willing to do this? Make a deal in his house. I read him. Patrick McEnroe said, You know, Jimmy likes being an a-hole. And Jimmy said, Oh, Patrick said that? Oh, that hurts. And there was a moment of humanity on his face, and he thought about it. He said, You know what? If I'm an A-hole, at least I'm a happy A-hole. And that's what the documentary kind of ends on. And the chief is Jimmy Connor's mother was a woman who, as you know, uh, beat him six oh six oh when he was six years old and never let him get a game. And he grew up being, you know, uh, not bullied by his mother, but being basically challenged to uh, win in a merciless manner. And that's what the documentary is about. How does somebody become this merciless? How do you do that to Aaron Christine? How do you beat Christine? I don't know if you know this part, because it's in the documentary. He never spoke to Christine again after that match. They were friends. He kind of, like, practiced with Aaron for years. And he never, ever spoke to Aaron again after that five battle. Wow which is just dark, right? dark? Yeah.
2: Well, there's a great story by the late, great Frank DeFord about Jimmy Connors growing up, um, how he yep. was raised. I think it begins with he was raised by women to beat men. Um, and it's about yep. Jimmy Connors' mom and Jimmy Connors' uh, grandmother. Brian, it's just really nice to have you. I should, I should go watch Rounders. I should do something to make you like me. Um, <laughs> you know.
3: I'm, a, I'm a huge... I'm a huge fan of yours, and, like, I really am. Uh, The other one thing, I've watched PPI forever. I've listened to the podcast. My my son really listens to the podcast uh, all all the time, and uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on.
2: Thank you so much, Brian Koppelman. And, again, it's called The Moment, and and that was great. We have to have him on again. That was really good. That was great. We will be back. Uh, We'll do email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Michelob Ultra read. In sports, if you think joy only happens after you win, think again. Look at the world's most successful athletes. They don't spend all their days grinding away. They take the time to enjoy themselves, like having a Michelob Ultra with friends, because they know that happiness is the key to winning and that joy is the whole game, not just the end game. In my life as a sports writer and somebody on television, I can think of two teams that exemplified this more than others. And I don't want you to get the wrong impression because to be a professional athlete means you have to work very, very hard at it. You're in an extraordinarily narrow slice of accomplishment when you reach the pros. But having fun is important as well. I would give you two. I would give you the 2019 Nats who every time they hit a home run, danced in the dugout. And when they danced in the dugout, the camera stayed on them. And it made all of us who rooted for the team very happy. And there was a sidebar to that. If Adam Eaton or Howie Kendrick were involved in a play that resulted in a run, they sat next to each other on the bench and they did a power shift as if they were driving a car. And that, too, gave them great joy and gave us as viewers great joy. The obvious other example is the 85 Bears, maybe the greatest single-season team in the NFL when they put together the Super Bowl shuffle, and everyone went, oh, my God, you can't do that. That's going to jinx you. you got to keep your nose to the grindstone. But no, they were the best team ever. They went through the playoffs something like 91 to 10. And even Wilbon knows how good they were, and I don't get angry when he says it. So that is the great joy that you can take from sports. Michelob Ultra. 95 calories, 2.6 grams of carbs. It's only worth it if you enjoy it. You're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show.
0: Just a bit west of Binghamton Sits a little sleepy college town where it seems like everyone's pants are falling down Here's Tony K to the rescue with a new box of that, it's going to waste. So, why not strap this bear cat around your waist? When you get caught without a belt in Johnson City. <laughs> here's a free one from the U. When you get caught without a belt in Johnson City best thing you can wear, the best thing you can wear, is spell
2: your love. <laughs> that's just wonderful. That's Joe Arrow. Bill Pitcher is playing behind him. Yes, yes, and I believe wrote the lyrics for that as well. I believe that's just wonderful, wonderful. All right, uh, do the Bethesda Bagel ad for us, please. Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. we got the bagels today. It's always a great day for us. Just go to
1: BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled and remember it's almost time to move your clocks and yeah oh, johnnyo.com and use tk clocks and you have a package that should be arriving before your big trip that includes a
2: new shacket tremendous that would be make me very very happy it's gonna be pretty cold where you're going yeah it is before we get to the mailbag let me just say the two of us riding nowhere spending someone's hard-earned pay you and me sunday driving not arriving on our way back home we're on our way home this is one of the greatest lennon and mccartney duos ever this particular song, the way they sing it, the way they look when they sing it. You you understand, you understand their history and you understand that people have come into their lives and moved them apart in ways that they don't really want. Thanks to our guest today, Chuck Culpepper, uh, Brian Koppelman, that was really, that was fun. Thanks as well to our sponsors, ExpressVPN, Policy Genius, Michelob Ultra Pure Gold. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Radio.com. If you get the show through iTunes, please leave us a review. From George McGough, M C G O U G H, McGough, maybe, McGough. I enjoyed your conversation regarding being old enough to remember the days before remote controls. I will be 57 this month, kid, which puts me in that group. <laughs> that did not have remote controls, had both color and black and white TVs and only three to five channels. As a young man in my early to mid teens, I remember my brother and I playing upstairs in our room on a Saturday afternoon when I hear my dad bellow from downstairs, George, which is my name and I dutifully answer what? I grew up in New Jersey. Dad replies, come down here, to which I reply okay. I trudge down the steps wondering what I've done that he knows about and he's not happy about. Instead, dad is sitting in his lazy boy watching TV and he looks up from his magazine. And he says, go put on channel seven. I <laughs> reply incredulously. You have me come all the way down here to change the channel for you? I'm not even watching dad's reply. Just change the channel. What do you think I had you for? A line I have repeated often with my own kids and why I think I get to claim being the first remote control ever, even if none of us knew what that was. Thanks for the entertainment for the many years I've been a little. And as a fellow member of the old man club, get off my lawn. It's from, called a clicker. From Ed Butt. Once again, you should listen to Michael. I'm a terrible singer. I'm one of those people in the choir who was told just to mouth the words. But I knew a woman who was a voice teacher by occupation and who sang for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. 35 years ago, she told me I can teach anyone to sing. I can't teach you to have a beautiful voice, but I can teach you to hit the right note. After my retirement, I ran into her at a party. I reminded her of her comment and said I'd like to take lessons. I had only two lessons, one each of the next two summers before she tragically passed away. I was stupidly hoping that she would give me some secret magic tip. Instead, she taught me a few techniques and then gave me training exercise. It was then that I realized it was like a golf pro giving you drills to improve your hand-eye coordination. So you hit a golf ball farther and straighter. Sure, you need a proper grip and posture, but then you have to practice. And likewise, you need to practice to improve your ear vocal cord coordination. So can I sing now? Nah, I'm just like you. I'm old and I'm too busy to practice. (laughs) Gotta open up that soft palate. (laughs) From Tom Pace, an associate professor of English at John Carroll University. In a week, I turned 52. For my birthday this year, the woman to whom I'm related by marriage bought me eight weeks of piano lessons. I, too, marvel at those who can sit down and pick out a song from just listening to it, who can learn a handful of chords and then are able to play any song under the sun. Me, I have the ear of a head of cabbage, but I'm going to give it a shot. Lessons begin March 17th. I'll keep you posted. Tom Pace, please do. Please do. Andrew Bracewell in Vancouver, British Columbia. On a podcast Michael alluded to a mystery piano teacher waiting in the wings to give you lessons when you're ready to tickle the ivories again. Well, I am happy to inform you that not only is that teacher a little, they are also one of the newest sponsors of the show. That's right, Tony Beeson's School for People Who Have a Piano is now open <laughs> and accepting students. Use the code I have a piano now and he'll pay you to come and give you lessons. You can learn to play such popular hits as I have a piano and instantly become the life of any semi-vaccinated cocktail party. What's better than one new sponsor? Two regular TK show contributor and professional golf course walker Steve Sands has started his own business, the Steve Sands Academy of Driving into Inanimate Objects. As an instructor, Mr. Sands is currently batting a thousand. Former pupils have left going, glowing reviews, such as "Mom, Dad, I hit the house for an unlimited <laughs> time." Use the code CRASH, and your insurance premiums could double even triple. From Tony Beeson. So you still want to learn how to play the piano? I have
5: a piano. Give me a
2: call sometime. I'll teach you everything I know. It should take 30 seconds. I know where middle C is. (laughs) Tony Beeson, wonderful. So happy that he communicates with the show. Uh, From Glenn Winters. He writes, I just heard Michael refer to his father's piano teacher. as Glenn. This made my ears perk up. Because I, the official opera composer of the TK show, I'm also named Glenn, and back in the day, many years ago, I used to teach private piano lessons in people's homes while working on my doctorate at Northwestern. I taught both very young children and adults in all ages in between, from beginners to advanced levels, and here's what I learned. All adult beginners are basically the same. They claim they have no talent and get extremely frustrated with their lack of progress. Adults have greater cognitive and analytical skills than young children. This is their handicap. Adults quickly understand the concept of what their fingers are supposed to be doing. This leads them to the mistaken idea that their fingers should execute those concepts just as quickly. Sorry, partner. It doesn't work that way. It's the opposite with five-year-olds. They can acquire physical coordination without the ability to analyze what's happening. They do before they think. So for all you grown-ups out there who want to take up the piano, my best advice is to be very, very patient with yourself. Recalibrate your definition of progress and be content with baby steps. Hey, I was a pretty fair classical pianist, and many as the time I would spend three hours practicing the same eight bars over and over until my fingers caught up with my brain. Glenn Winters in Newport News, Virginia. Isn't that nice? From Bob Humble in Abita Springs, um, Louisiana, I listened with great amusement. Steve Sands is sorry of his... Son hitting the house with the car. It prompted me to recall the day of Super Bowl I. My father and I were staunch NFL fans. Yes, I've seen every one. And were anxiously awaiting the kickoff when my older sister called to tell him she wrecked the front end of his car in an ill-conceived approach into a hamburger stand, one which she had been forbidden to go to. I rate he had to leave to address this misfortune. "'Upon return, he sternly instructed her "'to put the car in the garage. "'In her haste to abide by his instructions, "'she managed to hit the right side "'of the garage opening, "'which to my tender 13-year-old ears "'sounded like a hand grenade went off, "'only to follow with a certainty to me "'was another hand grenade emanating from my father.' Being that that side of the car was already demolished, now my dad was going to have to address the garage on that side too. The Denouement to this story was a win by his hated Packers, and much to my sister's sorrow, her driver's license taped to the refrigerator for one year. God, I miss him. That's really good. From Pete in Lake Elmo, Minnesota, the discussion about automobile incidents brings back a memory from the past. Let me set the stage. Car windshields are shatterproof. They have a thin layer of plastic in them that keep them from forming jagged edges, basically reducing them to that glass gravel you would see after an accident. Well, my father made the mistake of telling seven-year-old me that car windows are unbreakable. So a few days later, I come across a hammer in the garage, and I decide to put it to the test. The rear power window of our Chevrolet station wagon was quite breakable. It was not even shatterproof. It blew up like fireworks. I still saw it as his fault. Be careful of what you tell little kids. And from Mark Schwab in Brentwood, Tennessee. In what is now a Schwab family tradition, I would like to trash my sister Jennifer on your fine podcast. <laughs> As you can imagine, in 1992, there weren't many Land Rovers in Fayetteville, Arkansas. In fact, there was only one, and it was owned by a horrible woman and my sister's English teacher, and we'll just call her Mrs. S. On Jennifer's fourth day of having a license, she found a way of both, commuting, of both committing the most egregious moving violation in the history of the 72703 and driving our mom's Subaru into Mrs. S.'s month-old gold Landover. My life has been made infinitely better by teachers, including my parents. But almost 30 years later, I still find joy in knowing that Moose had her day (laughs) ruined by a girl driving the wrong way on Mission Boulevard. La cheesery. (laughs) If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. What a waste of
4: time. God.
6: We sit across from each other, books in hand, in room. Our- That's